Whatever is happening in your life today, you are not alone. If you are a Christian and you are in union with Christ, that means you have uh, confessed your sins, you've repented of your sins, you've, you've changed your mind about what God says about you and you now believe it's true that you're a sinner and you need a Savior. You've changed your mind about what you believe about God, what He says about Himself in His Word, and you're now trusting in Jesus Christ alone. If that's you, you are not alone. You are not an orphan. You have a Father in heaven, and He is everywhere working in and through everything that is happening in your life to bring you good. And some of you need to hear this at the beginning of the sermon because of what's happening in your life right now. So you can take a deep breath right now and you can actually cast all your cares on Jesus right now because he cares for you. And so that paragraph that I just read was littered with promises from God's word. You're not alone. You're not an orphan. You have a father Jesus is omnipresent. He's working through everything in your life to bring you good. You can cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. All of that comes from promises in God's word, in the Bible. That means that the Bible is very practical. God is very practical. He comes to us in the everyday stuff. His promises are for the everyday stuff. His promises come to us in the everyday stuff like parenting and work and soccer practice and doing the dishes and folding laundry and buying groceries and doing schoolwork. Listen, when God makes promises in His Word, He's not trying to be sensational. He's not trying to get attention. He's not looking for hearts on social media. He's not looking for retweets on social media. When God makes promises in his word, he means for us to use them in the everyday stuff of life. He's not trying to be sensational and get followers on Twitter. He's far more practical than that. He means for us to use his promises in everyday stuff, even on Mother's Day. And I hope you honor the mothers in your life today. I'm sure there are a lot of hardworking moms who have been involved in some way in your life, and they have been a blessing to you, your mom, your wife, your grandmother, aunts, whatever. You should honor them today. But for some people, Mother's Day is hard. God knows that. And He cares. Jesus cares that Mother's Day is hard for you. And maybe that's what you need to hear in a sermon on Mother's Day. Maybe what you need most on Mother's Day is a sermon that reminds you of God's promises. That you have a Father in heaven who cares deeply for you. Maybe Mother's Day brings up painful memories for you. Maybe you lost your mother. Maybe she passed away. And so Mother's Day is hard for you because you miss your mom. Maybe you lost a child and you are grieving as a mother today. Maybe you desperately want to be a mother, but you have not been successful. You want to be a mom, but you just can't seem to get pregnant. 
if Mother's Day is hard for you, if it's not a joyous occasion, please know that you have a Father in heaven and He cares deeply about your pain and your heartache. As Psalm 34 verse 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Maybe that's you today. Brokenhearted. Brokenhearted on Mother's Day. Well, let me give you some hope. Jesus is near. That's a promise that he gave you. He didn't say that he would be near the brokenhearted just to be sensational. He said it to give you comfort. So pour your heart out to him today. Jesus loves when you talk to him. Did you know that? We struggle with prayer on our end. Jesus loves when you talk to him. He wants you to tell him what's troubling you. He wants you to tell him what's breaking your heart. He wants you to open up your heart to him and to tell him how you feel. Just talk to him about what's breaking your heart. And so the psalmist says here in Psalm 34, verse 18, that the Lord is near. That word near in Hebrew is used of the next of kin. The person whose right it was to take on himself as his own all the needs and troubles of his relative. It's used two times of Boaz in the book of Ruth, chapter 2 and chapter 3. If you are brokenhearted on Mother's Day, Jesus is near. That's a promise. He's your next of kin who has taken on the responsibility to care for you. And he has taken your needs and your problems and your pain and your heartache as his own. And so receive that now. Receive that promise Rub it into your pores. And that's our big idea today. Rub God's promises into your pores. Well, what does that mean and how do we do that? Here's what it looks like to rub God's promises into your pores. This past week, Dane Ortland tweeted this on Twitter. He said this, It's the weirdest thing. Once I say a passage from Scripture out loud, like, I don't know, 50 to 60 times, I actually start to get it. And I actually find my heart believing it. But it takes that determined assault on my unbelief before it happens. That's one way to rub God's promises into your pores. To say it over and over and over again. Maybe even 50 to 60 times. And your heart will start to believe it. Rubbing God's promises into your pores means that you take a determined assault on your unbelief. When we rub the assurances of God's promises into our pores, that's when we experience the power of His hope. When you rub the assurances of God's promises into your pores, that's when you experience the power of His hope. And so you find a promise in His Word, and you rub and rub and rub it into your pores until hope comes. You say it over and over again until your heart believes it. You think about it. You memorize it. You repeat it. 
That's how it works. That's the Christian life in a nutshell. God's promises are the one thing that we can count on in this confusing, heartbreaking world in which we find ourselves. And God's promises are exactly what Solomon was counting on. And that's what we'll see in 1 Kings chapter 8 today. So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. Contrary to most preachers, we're just going to keep going where we were. So we're in 1 Kings chapter 8. Contrary to most preachers on Mother's Day, I should say. We're going to see how faithful God is. How he keeps his promises. How he keeps his word. How he makes and keeps promises. I mean, it's one thing to make promises. It's another thing to keep them. And that's exactly what God does. This is who your God is, Christian. He makes and keeps promises. So 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Solomon said... The Lord, Yahweh, has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt... I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. So if you remember from a few weeks back, Solomon and crew are dedicating the temple. It took seven years to complete it. And so they celebrated earlier in the chapter the Feast of Tabernacles. And they offered so many sacrifices that they lost count. And after they put the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies, if you remember, the glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh, that's God's covenant name in Hebrew, the glory of the Lord showed up in this thick cloud in the temple. And that's where we are in verse 12. After the glory cloud filled the temple, Solomon prayed to Yahweh, to the Lord, and then he addressed the nation of Israel. Solomon prays to Yahweh and says that the Lord dwells in thick darkness. As we saw several weeks ago, this means that there is mystery with God. There is mystery with the God that we serve. We can't possibly know all there is to know about God. We know enough, but we don't know everything because God is infinite and we aren't. And because God is infinite, because He's omnipresence, His presence isn't just limited to the temple. God is everywhere. I mean, yes, God is there in the temple. The Ark of the Covenant is there. The glory cloud is there. God has made a way for sinners to enjoy His presence. That's what's happening at the temple. He's he's given us a key to His house. So the temple is this reminder that There is no situation where Jesus isn't near. He has made his home with us, God with us, Emmanuel, and he is with you today, the next of kin, even on Mother's Day. But even though Yahweh moved into the temple that Solomon built, the temple cannot contain God. As Solomon will say later in verse 27 in this chapter, does God really dwell on earth in the temple? 
Heaven and earth cannot contain the God that we worship, let alone this temple that Solomon has built. Solomon's point is that he has built this temple because this was God's plan for Solomon's life. God just can't get close enough to his people, so he has Solomon build the temple. But the temple could not contain God because God is everywhere. This is his world. His sovereignty is not just limited to a few acres of the universe or to a small room inside the temple. Jesus is everywhere. The glory cloud is saying to Solomon and everyone at the temple that they live in a world where Yahweh has his fingers in everything. In other words, Jesus is all up in everything. He's all up in our business. And he's all up in the universe's business. And that's a good thing. Recall from your extensive knowledge of the Old Testament how prior to the building of the temple, the Lord did just live in a tent in the Mosaic Tabernacle. The ark was in the Mosaic Tabernacle. Yahweh didn't make plans to live in a big city yet. This was God's plan all along when they came out of Egypt, as verse 16 says. After the exodus from Egypt, the Lord was content to dwell in a tent. The Ark of the Covenant was in just a little tent in the Mosaic Tabernacle. No big temple, no mansion, no sprawling estate, just a tent. And that was the plan. The nation of Israel was camping out, and the Lord said that he would camp out too. He was saying, I want to be with my people if they're camping out. I'm going to camp out. But Solomon also tells us in verse 16 that God's plan was for his father David to be king over Israel. Recall the story of when David was chosen to be king. The prophet Samuel goes one by one through the resumes of Jesse's sons, but they weren't the one. And then he says, bring the youngest son David from the field. And Samuel anointed him to be king. And when David was king, he had big plans to finally build a temple for the Lord. David wanted to move the Ark of the Covenant, move the Lord, if you will, move Yahweh to a temple in Jerusalem that he would build. David wanted to get Yahweh out of the campsite and move him into this luxurious temple in the city. But God came to David and said, nope. Not going to happen. Not going to happen, David. Look at verse 17. Now, it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I, Solomon, have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so David had these big plans to build a temple for the Lord, and it was a good thing, it was a good desire, but the Lord came and told David, nope, not going to happen on your watch. Wait. And your son will do the job for me. But what did it mean for David to have to wait? It's the same for us. God gives promises and we have to wait. 
with expectation. We don't wait biting our nails, hoping that God comes through. We don't wait pacing the floor. We wait in faith because we know what kind of God He is. We know Him. He's faithful. He keeps covenant. He has committed Himself to us. Listen, God is not toying with us. He's not playing games. He's not getting some weird kick out of watching us squirm as we wait. Like, hey, Michael, come here. Look at that guy. He's waiting for me to come through for him. Look at him squirm. He's pacing the floor and biting his nails. You guys got to see this. He didn't trust my promises. Look at that. He's not playing games with us. He's not getting a kick out of watching us squirm while we wait. That's not who he is. Waiting is faith doing what faith does, which is waiting. Faith waits until the promise is fulfilled. Faith has to be comfortable waiting. Faith waits because faith knows who God is and faith knows that what God says he will do, he will do. Faith believes that the fulfillment is certain even though you can't see it and even though it seems hopeless. Faith is not phased. Faith is not phased, not because our faith is so special. Faith is not phased because faith knows who God is. Faith knows God's character. And knowing who God is enables faith to be patient as it waits. And so faith waits until God finally shows up. The, question that, the questions that David had to answer when he wanted to build the temple and had to wait for his son to do it, it's the same for us. Are you willing to go at God's pace while you wait? Are you willing to go at God's pace? Not yours, because you want it done yesterday. Are you willing to go at God's pace? Are you willing to go by His calendar? Are you willing to trust God with everything? Are you willing to leave every detail with Jesus, down to the smallest of details, and trust Him that He knows what He's doing? Faith is comfortable with God's nose. Not His nose, like a nose on a face, but His no. This is not my plan. David had to be comfortable with God's nose. David wanted to build a house for the Lord. The dynamic temple that Solomon built and is finally dedicated after seven long years, David wanted to do that. David wanted to be the one who built the temple. And Yahweh came along and put his loving, fatherly arm around David and simply said, No, son, I'm sorry. You're not the one. Your son will do it. You're the king, but don't be greedy. And so faith waits. And while it waits, it keeps rubbing God's promises into its pores. That's how faith stays alive. That's how faith stays alive. It keeps rubbing God's promises into its pores. 
But did you notice that the author of 1 Kings here stresses the promises and the faithfulness of Yahweh in this paragraph? He's telling us who God is. He's highlighting God's character for us. The covenant-keeping nature of Yahweh, that He's made a commitment to us and He will never turn back on that. The author of 1 Kings keeps driving his point home. Solomon speaks here about how Yahweh kept his promises. And one of those promises that the Lord kept is what the Lord told David. And it's that Solomon, his son, would sit as king on David's throne and that the Lord would be a father to Solomon. Listen to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. This is the Lord speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And so now, at the temple dedication, Solomon is now testifying to the fact that the Lord had indeed established his kingdom, and the Lord had indeed enabled Solomon to build the temple, and the Lord had been a father to him. The Lord has shown himself faithful to Solomon, a faithful father, and the Lord has fulfilled what he promised. So Solomon is telling us here, That Yahweh, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he's telling us that the Lord made all of these wild and crazy promises to his father David. That David would always have a son on the throne and that his kingdom would last forever. That's a crazy promise. You'll always have a son on the throne and your kingdom will last forever. And so who can understand these crazy commitments that Yahweh makes? Think about it. Who can understand these out-of-this-world, wild and crazy commitments that Yahweh makes? These out-of-this-world promises. The Lord made a promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And get this, the whole structure and flow and hope of world history has to rest on the existence of this line of kings from a tiny ancient Near Eastern kingdom. Think about that. The whole scope of history is riding on this one promise from 2 Samuel chapter 7 about this tiny little kingdom. Who does that? Who comes up with a plan like that? God does. You may be thinking, that's it? A promise? That's all David and Solomon were banking on. A promise. No military power, no wisdom, just a simple promise that their God was with them and would establish their kingdom. That's all they have? Do you know who they were up against? Do you know the superpowers of the day? Have you read how evil the Assyrians were? Do you know how powerful Babylon was? Have you ever heard of the Egyptians? And all that this father and son duo have going for them is a simple promise? Yep. Yep. Because where are the Assyrians now? Long gone. Where are the Egyptians? Gone. Where are the Babylonians? Gone. Bye-bye. And who is still here? God's people. We're still here. God's people. 
people of God are still here. We have not vanished off the screen of history. And to tip you off early, we ain't ever leaving. Kingdoms come and go, but we remain. The people of God remain. The kingdom of God is still advancing in this world, and it has no plans to stop. The promise to David continues And it found its fulfillment in Jesus, the ultimate Davidic king. The Davidic king par excellence. The one who lived and died for sinners like us. And now he invites us to join him on his mission as his kingdom keeps advancing in this world. Understand this, Grace. God doesn't water down his promises to what looks conceivable. God doesn't water down his promises to something that looks conceivable and we think, "Mm, I I could see that happening maybe. He doesn't whittle them down to make them easier to believe or to make them manageable. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Jesus makes big, seemingly too good to be true, wild and crazy, out-of-this-world promises that go against what we think is the norm. He makes promises that are so outrageous that we often have trouble believing them, right? And what do you do when you come to a wild, crazy, out-of-this-world, too-good-to-be-true, hard-to-believe promise? Rub God's promises into your pores. Say it out loud over and over, maybe, I don't know, 50 to 60 times until your heart believes. That's exactly what David and Solomon had to do. David had to keep saying, God made a promise to me. I'd have a son and my kingdom would last forever. God made a promise to me. I'd have a son and my kingdom would last forever. Solomon had to say it. God made a promise to my David said that I would build the temple, and I've done it now, and my kingdom will last forever. Our kingdom will last forever. They had to just keep saying it over and over again. And so Yahweh made a promise to David that his throne would last forever, and Solomon is claiming that promise here. Solomon is rubbing that promise into his pores. But why should you, on Mother's Day in 2019, why should you care about what happens to Solomon? Why should you concern yourself with this prayer that was prayed so long ago? Here's why you should be interested in Solomon's prayer. Because Yahweh's reputation as a promise keeper is at stake here. The shadow of 2 Samuel chapter 7 hovers over 1 Kings chapter 8. The backdrop to Solomon's prayer is 2 Samuel chapter 7 and Yahweh's promise to his father David where he said this, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 16. And Yahweh kept that promise because Jesus came. The last one in that line of Davidic kings would be Jesus the Messiah, the one who was actually anticipated back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so, yes, this prayer matters because it leads to Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us on the cross. 
Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Christ is just the Greek transliteration of the word Messiah in Hebrew, Mashiach, the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed king. Jesus, when he takes the name Christ, is identifying himself as the anointed one that was promised all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The king whose kingdom would endure and last forever. So you see, there's far more theology in these verses in 1 Kings 8 than we may realize. Is this a passage, let me ask you, is this a passage that you would go to in order to study theology, in order to study God, who he is, what his character is like? Would you take a new disciple to 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 12 to 21, to teach them about Jesus? You can. You should. Because there is far more theology here in these 10 verses than you might realize. This passage is actually oozing with theology. You wonder what that sticky stuff coming out of your Bible was? That's theology. It's just oozing out of 1 Kings chapter 8. And you can find it in verse 15. You can find it in verse 20 in these words. Promised. Promise. Fulfilled. The word promised is used twice. Promise once and fulfilled twice. You should circle or highlight or under those, underline those words in your Bible. Even if you're not a person who circles, highlights, or underlines words in your Bibles or your books, James Barr. <laughs> you should circle or highlight or underline those words because those words are the secret to Solomon's hope. They're the secret to Solomon's hope and they're the secret to your hope. When we rub the assurances of God's promises into our pores, when we say them out loud 50 to 60 times, or when we highlight, underline, or circle them in our Bibles, that's when we experience the power of His hope. Those words there tip you off that this is a passage that should be in systematic theology books. And sadly, it's probably not mentioned that much in systematic theology books because it might seem on the surface to be one of those paragraphs that you just kind of read through and forget. But that would be a grave mistake. This big paragraph here in 1 Kings chapter 8 has a lot of stuff to say about Jesus. Stuff about Jesus that just might get you through what you're going through right now. And so by the emphatic repetition of these words, promised, promises, fulfilled, those words in verses 15 to 20, the author of 1 Kings is pounding Yahweh's faithfulness into our senses. He's trying to rub them into our pores. It's as if he knows that we struggle to believe. It's as if he knows that our faith is weak. It's as if he knows that we struggle to believe that God is as good as he says he is. It's as if the author of 1 Kings has been eavesdropping on our thoughts. As if he's actually been listening to our prayers. And he certainly knew what the original audience would have been thinking. Remember, they were in exile in Babylon. This is who the books of 1 and 2 Kings were written to. God's people who had been carted off to Babylon. 
They were driven from the promised land because they worshipped other gods. Certainly the author of 1 Kings assumes that they would be having doubts about God's promises. And knowing this, he just can't keep from using words like promised, promises, fulfilled. He's pounding Yahweh's faithfulness into their senses. He's pounding Yahweh's faithfulness into our senses. He's encouraging the exiles to hang on in hope, to rub God's promises into their pores. And he's telling you to do that today on Mother's Day in 2019. And so all of these words that Solomon keeps repeating are really theological statements. Words like promise and fulfill, fulfilled tell us about what kind of God we are dealing with. They're telling us about his character, who God is. They're words that should cause us to worship. Did you do that when you read those words? These simple yet deep theological words in verses 15 and 20, promised and fulfilled, these words should cause you and me to worship. They're simple words in English, right? Promised, fulfilled, but they're jam-packed with theology. And theology always does its best work when it leads to worship. Theology, the study of God, understanding who He is, always does its best work when it leads to worship. Theology should always restore our awe of God. I can't believe you're that good. I can't believe you forgive me. I can't believe you're faithful. Theology should always make us sing. And it did Solomon and company. Why? Because when the backdrop of Yahweh's faithfulness to his promises, when the backdrop is the long, drawn-out, sin-stained history of his people, and then the fulfillment finally comes, you can't help but respond in worship. That's why Solomon blessed all the people, and then he called the Lord blessed in verses 14 to 15. Let me read those verses again. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood, and he said, Blessed be the Lord. What does it mean to bless someone? What does it mean that Solomon blessed them? And what does it mean to bless the Lord, to call him blessed? Let's answer those two questions. What does it mean to bless the Lord, to say, Blessed be the Lord? When we bless the Lord, it is shorthand For take note of his glories and excellencies and respond to them in wonder and adoration. It's remembering who he is and what he has done and responding in worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul, which we sang earlier in the service, means to take note of his glories and excellencies, to dwell on them, to think long and hard about them, and to respond to them in wonder and worship. And as Chet said, if you're in prison, locked up, you make up a few more verses to that song. You write down a few things that you know about Jesus and you think about them. And you pray them back to God. That's how you rub his promises into your pores. What does it mean to bless someone? To say, Lord, would you bless that person? When we ask God to bless someone, like Solomon does here, it's shorthand for take note of his needs and meet them. 
When you say, God, would you bless that person? You're saying, God, would you look down and observe what's happening in their life and see the needs that they have, and then would you faithfully meet their very and every need? And so when Solomon blesses the people here, he's asking Yahweh, take note of their needs, God, and then come down and meet them. And when Solomon blesses the Lord here, he's dwelling on and he's thinking about Yahweh's glories and his excellencies, his character, who he is, and he's responding in worship and adoration. That's what theology does. Theology always does its best work when it leads to worship, when it leads to awe, when it leads to adoration. Theology should always restore our awe of God. Every seminary graduate should walk off the graduation stage in awe and wonder of God. But I know so many guys I went to school with who left burned out or infatuated with academia. And they didn't leave in awe and wonder of God. Four years of seminary should lead a heart to awe and wonder of God. Your Sunday school classes should lead to awe and wonder of God. The Awana celebration at the end of the year should lead to awe and wonder of God. Sixth graders moving up to junior high, you should walk in there today and be in awe and wonder of the God who saved you from your sins. Theology should always make us sing. Theology should always make us bless the Lord. Theology is always at its best when it includes doxology, when it leads to worship, when it leads to awe, when it cannot speak without at the same time worshiping. Theology should give us our awe back. Sermons should give us our awe back. If I ever preach a sermon and you don't get your awe back, please come and talk to me and say, do it better in the second service. Because you didn't give me my awe back. I don't know what you were talking about up there, but you're supposed to give me my awe back, Pastor, and you didn't. If that ever comes, please come tell me. And again, your heart may be hard too, so it may not be the preacher. <laughs> Theology should give us our awe back. Words like promised and fulfilled should give her all back because they're telling us that he is faithful when we are fickle. He is faithful. And we were all fickle this week and we were all fake with other people. And he has never abandoned us and he never will. And he says, those are my people. Yeah, they're fickle and they're fake, but I love them and I'm never going to let them go. Systematic theology books should close each chapter with the words to a hymn or a chorus or something because that's where theology should lead us to worship. You might want to add some words from a hymn or a song after this paragraph here in 1 Kings 8 because when you get to the end of verse 21, you should want to worship. I wrote the words, bless the Lord, O my soul, in my Bible right after verse 21. Seeing those two words, promised and fulfilled, in this paragraph should lead us to worship. Because he makes promises and he keeps them. This is how, what Solomon's saying here, this is how trusting people speak to God. This is how trusting people speak to their God. Hearing about God's character should lead us to worship and to bless the Lord. 
as Alec Motier said. All worship should be like that. A blessing of Yahweh, a review of his character, his grace, his saving power, his providential care, the blood of the sacrifice he has provided and ordained, the rest he gives to his beloved as he welcomes us into his house and home. He welcomes fake, fickle people into his house and home. Who does that? God does. That's what Solomon and company are celebrating here. And that's what we want to do too. We want to bless the Lord. We want to dwell on his character. He's good. He's loving. He's kind. He's faithful. He's gracious. He's powerful enough to save the worst sinner. He cares and he is providentially governing our lives. And he sent his son Jesus who lived and died for us and whose blood washes away our sins. And he gives us rest. And he welcomes us into his presence, into his house and home. All of that paragraph that I just read are promises that you can find in God's word. And when you find those promises, do this. Rub God's promises into your pores. Say them over and over and over again, like, I don't know, 50 to 60 times until your heart believes it. So let's do it together now, shall we? Let's end with one of my favorite promises in scripture. And let me show you what it looks like to rub God's word into your pores. Hebrews 8:12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. You feel the weight of guilt and shame today? Can't seem to shake that guilty feeling? Do you feel condemned? I went to Heather last night. I just had a rough day. Cranky, tired, snapping at my kids, irritable. And Heather was laying on the bed, and I just kind of leaned over on her, and I said, I can't wait till tomorrow morning because his mercies will be new. And they were new then, but I knew that guilt and shame, being a terrible parent, would be right there waiting on me when I woke up. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to believe that even though I've blown it as a parent today, his mercies will be new for me in the morning. So try this. I won't do it 50 to 60 times right now. I only do it five to six times. But this is what it looks like to rub God's promises into your pores. You say it over and over again. Hebrews 8, 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Let's stand and bless the Lord. Father, we ask you as we've been praying, show us your glory. And we know that your glory is most clearly seen at the cross where you gave your son who lived and died for us and whose blood washes away our sins. And so we say, show us even more of who you are. Reveal your character even more. Open our eyes, illumine our minds to understand more of what you're like. And may we respond in worship and adoration. May we be awestruck that you are as good as you say you are. And then may you get great glory. In Jesus' name, amen.